Hello guys and girls and welcome back to another episode of Seb Talk Sports, sponsored by Hoopin and Luton, the place to go to for your favourite new and vintage jerseys and apparel from all things basketball. That intro music and podcast theme was created by all pro New York Giants running back, now music creator and friend of the show, David Wilson. Go and check him out on all of his social media platforms at Forza Running on Twitter and Instagram and his music under David E. Wilson across all good music streaming services. He's free for business so drop him a message if you want some beats for your podcast, adverts, commercial, absolutely anything you need. Before I get into this episode I just want to say that if you're not already following Seb Talk Sports across all platforms then please do. You can find me on Facebook Facebook, Seb Talks Sports, YouTube, Seb Talks Sports, Twitter, at Seb Talks Sports, and Instagram, where I'm primarily active. Again, it's at Seb Talks Sports. Today, I've got a brilliant guest on my show, one of the IFFHS's top 100 referees of all time, an 11-year FIFA-listed and former Premier League and Football League referee who officiated the 1981 FA Cup Final, the 1988 European Championships, and many other of the most notable matchups in football history. It's the one and only Keith Hackett. Enjoy. My guest today is one of the greatest football referees of all time, an 11-year FIFA-listed and former Premier League and Football League referee who's officiated some of the most famous games in the sport's history. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome Mr Keith Hackett to Seb Talk Sports. Keith, how are you? I'm fine, Seb. Delighted to be on your show. And to join all those other guests that you've uh, had, you've got quite a formidable list of, uh, of sports people. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm very much looking forward to uh, getting into it all. Yes. Lovely stuff. Okay, so as a man who's both officiated and covered the sport for the vast majority of his life, it's clear to see that your passion of the game has been there from a very young age, of course. So what are your earliest mm. memories of watching and or playing football? And when was it that you truly fell in love with the sport? Well, I took up refereeing in 60, uh, age 16. So mm. that was a young age in refereeing terms. But before that, I played, uh, obviously, school football and I played a local team. Um, I suppose really when I looked down at, you know, age nine, 10, my father was taking me to Hillsborough to watch Sheffield Wednesday. And um, so when Sheffield Wednesday were at home, the ritual was to walk to the ground. That was about three miles mm. from our terraced house where I was literally born and bred. And, um, and it was a ritual. Uh, he'd stop at the pub, or we'd stop at the pub on the way. He'd have a couple of pints of beer and, uh, and I'd have an orange juice and a packet of crisps <laughs> and then walk the remainders away. When they got to Hillsborough, usually they've always had good attendances. And so we stood on the cop. And uh, the interesting bit was when I arrived, invariably there was a big crowd. The cop was generally full. And I would be surfed down the top of supporters' heads, <laughs> passing us down to the front. <laughs> So you had a good view. And I suppose really what hit home then was, you know, I often talk about memorable games and the link. Uh, and the link was in 1979, and I'm not jumping, but uh, I was appointed to referee an FA Cup semi-final, uh, Liverpool versus Arsenal. And uh, it was a Hillsborough. Mm. Uh, I'd always wanted to be on the green bit. I'd never been on the green bit. And, uh, and so I decided, my, my father sadly passed away, so I drove to where I used to live, and all the houses, terraced houses, had been raised to the ground. So it was pretty open space. There was a, the beginnings of a, a ski uh, resort, if you like, which is amazing in Sheffield. And I parked the car up and walked to the ground um, for three miles, bag in hand, uh, blazer, 
looking pretty dapper, passing <laughs> people on the way. One or two said, where are you going, Keith? That recognised me. I'm, I'm on my way to Hillsborough. And what are you doing there? I'm just going to a match. Uh, I didn't do that one. I was going to uh, the referee. <laughs> when, when the guy, you know, when I arrived, the two two linesmen then were, were waiting. Um, we had a good chat. Walked around. I, you know, when I walked on the pitch, the memories came back. Mm. You know, I even almost walked to where I used to stand as a boy, and um, it was quite choking, really. But nonetheless. Um, Enjoyed the game. It was nil-nil. It was pretty tight. It went on to several replays, of which I got the next replay, but didn't see the result. And when the FA guy came in and said, right, Keith, you know, what's your expenses? Uh, I, I used the Yorkshire expression, which is note, which means nothing. And mm -hmm. They looked at me absolutely like glazed eye. What do you mean nothing? I, went, I walked to the ground and I walked back. <laughs> that was a and you know, after the match, I walked back. I mean, I got showered, had a, had a, uh, a drink with the boys, a cup of tea, nothing spiritual, and um, walked back. Put the car off. It was still there, much to my surprise, and uh, drove, drove home. So, it, it, so that's the memory. Mm. Uh, you know, it's early. I've always been involved in football. I seem yeah. to always involved. And you know, when you have twelve years at grassroots level, referee. Um, you know, Saturday, Sunday, twice a midweek. I used to referee uh, five-a-side football at the YMCA on a on a Wednesday evening, and that involved all the the car dealers in Sheffield. So it's mm -hmm. quite competitive, but it was also highly amusing because, you know, before the game, you'd have uh, you'd have one guy saying, "Well, I'm trying to shift the Rolls Royce." Now that's difficult in Sheffield. I'm trying to sh I'm trying to shift this Rolls Royce. I've tried it on this plot. It's not working. Um, what about what about the, the west end of the city? Can we uh, can we have a? Is anybody willing to take it? And you'd have this wheel of dealing going on <laughs> in order which car was in what side. When we played five a side, it was very competitive mm. and um, and very enjoyable. And of course, I, I say to referees now, if you if you take up the whistle, one of the great things to train is. Five aside is very quick. It keeps you sharp. It keeps you focused. And I think that was one of that pieces of the mosaic that helped help my refereeing career. Dealing with guys who are a lot older, some in the fifties, they were prepared to tell you what they thought when they didn't think the decision had gone their way. Uh, and you learn you learn the craft. But the interesting bit was after the game, it was all like thank you very much and very polite and very enjoyable. Very, very nice. That's a great, great story there about the Hillsborough trip there. Now, of course, we all know a referee's responsibilities on the field, but in terms of the daily schedule of an official, I am sure a lot of listeners haven't got a single clue. So could you please take us through a day in the life of a FIFA-listed referee on match day and whether or not you had any superstitions or routines you would always do before kickoff? I did. Uh, and it's an interesting point because I'm now going to talk about Premier League and then I'll talk about Europe. Mm -hmm. In the in the uh, in the Premier League, um, the, the format is that uh, you invariably are staying in the city of the game overnight. Mm. Uh, in most instances, and then you get up with your colleagues and have a nice breakfast, and then relax, ready for the game. Um, you arrive at the ground. I I used to be, you know, I didn't have that. 
at all. Uh, I would drive to the ground, park up, and uh, and often three, four hours before kickoff. Because the one thing I didn't want to be is if you're driving from A to B, I had to be there. Mm. I didn't have a, I didn't want a traffic jam. And early in my career, when I was on the Northern Premier League as a referee, I was on my way to referee Northwich Victoria versus uh, Macclesfield. Neither were in Macclesfield weren't then in the football league. And on the way, I got sideswiped by a car, big time. And I was okay, perfectly okay, that the car, which was about a week old, uh, had taken quite an impact. And so we pulled out the, the sort of side of the car to clear the wheel, drove to the game and refereed the match. And it was a, a difficult game. But the old point was that it taught me I'm, not, I'm never going to be late for a game. Mm. And as a consequence for that, uh, I always used to arrive very early. You know, the, lots of stories. Uh, you know, I, I go to Bury. I arrive at Bury Football Club. The groundsman's surprised to see me. Makes me a cup of tea. I'm sat in the dressing room. I said, look, I'm perfectly okay. I might later just walk down into Bury, but it was some distance from the town. I might just have a walk. Uh, I certainly would go for a walk. But I remember the guy coming in uh, round about... 30 with a with a red hot eye, quite a big one, <laughs> and handed it to me and said, "Here, ref, have this before the game." And and I said, "Really sorry, that's not the the sort of food that I would eat before a football match. It's usually toast or egg on toast or something that's uh, taken fairly early." And he said, "You really got out the pie. These are delicious pies. These are <laughs> these are famous in Bury." And uh, I, I said to him, "No thanks." And as he was leaving with the pie, he turned and said, you know, Keith, I have to tell you this. If you had taken this pie, it's one less for the spectators to throw it. During the <laughs> I was laughing that. It sticks with me as a story. Generally, you're, you're there two, two and a half hours before kickoff. Mm. And, the, and the procedure is that uh, usually about one and a half hours before the game, uh, the... Chief Stewart would come into the dressing room along with the chief police officer on the day, mm-hmm. the ground commander, if you like, and he would come in and they'd run with you through the security aspect in detail, where the away spectators are, where they're coming from, obviously, how they're traveling, any potential problems that they might see, any arrangement that you might have with regard to <coughs> canceling the game. Mm deterioration conditions, hands or whatever, and where we would egress out of, out of the pitch. Uh, and all those sort of things are discussed. You know, if I go back to my time as an active referee, in, uh, at Old Trafford, for example, they had a blue light over each goal. I up in the stand, and if that blue light was flashing, that's an alert warning to the referee that something's amiss mm. in the stadium. And, and I went through a, a period when, you know, uh, you had the problems with Northern Ireland, Ireland and, and uh, the bomb scares. Mm. So all those things were taken care of. One hour before kickoff, the uh, manager, ideally, but if not the first team coach, but generally the manager would come into the dressing room with his captain mm-hmm. and exchange 
the team sheet. And, you know, the referee would say to the captain, my name's Keith. How do you want to be addressed on the pitch? You know, you're going to be my conduit today. If I've got a problem, I'm going to be happy to verse with you. Uh, and that opens up the door to some degree to have a discussion and dialogue. And then, of course, um, you've got a countdown. You know, usually six minutes before kickoff, you're giving the bell uh, and they're congregating in the, in the tunnel area. You're checking the footwear, the assistance, mm -hmm. and then you're out on the pitch. And of course, you can't start the game unless you get the TV guy to the side of the pitch. You often see them giving a signal. The reasoning behind that is, if you imagine, the Premier League games are covered by 22 cameras and they've been to 211 territories, so about 45 television companies. Mm. And the timing is so important, the kickoff in particular. If you can imagine kicking off a minute early in a Premier League game and somebody scores, yeah. and, and out, out in Japan or in, in other parts of Asia, they're suddenly saying, welcome to this game. Oh, by the way, the score is 1-0. Mm. Yeah, cool. Uh, so, so when when you're at the elite level, you're managing an event. You you know you're checking the technical area and the occupants. You understand and know where the paramedics are, where the doctors are, and all those that are not taken for granted. You have a look at the pitch. You check the nets. Mm. Uh, you check the team colours. So that's the principle of a Premier League game. Obviously, a new EFA. Uh, when you've got a Champions League or, or, or a World Cup game, you've got to be in the city 24 hours before kickoff. Mm. That's the minimum. Wow. And, um, and, and at 10 o'clock in the morning of the match, you will go to the stadium and the away team and home team will have laid out on, the, on, a, on a table the team colours. Mm-hmm. And you will check the, the size of the advertising. You will probably more often than not ask for the tape over the goalkeeper's uh, gloves that have got big advertising. You'll ask for that because that's not allowed or wasn't allowed. You'd have that taped over. And then you're addressing what shirt colours you're going to wear as referee. And then if, if in terms of stockings, you know, if they're going to, you know, you'll ask if you're going to have tape or you're going to tape the bottom of your stocking, it's got to be the same color as the, as the sock. So all those things. And then you're going to an absolute uh, countdown clock, you know, by the second. Mm. And so you're at the hotel, you're usually leaving the hotel about an hour and a half with a police escort. Mm. Uh, you arrive at the stadium, you obviously hang your kit up, go out and check the nets or look generally. And I can remember in the 80, in 1988, the European Championships opening, opening game, nation's game, so a big game, Germany v Italy. Um, we came up the tunnel, and to get on the pitch, there was a, a Lurpak butter warning. <laughs> and so I, I, I've gone, this is a problem. You, you can't have players talking over mm. an advertising side to get on the pitch. So... There was a discussion that took about 30 minutes. We had to get the marketing department. It was all like hell let loose because somebody had paid several million to have that, that advertising uh, sign, but we had it moved, mm. you know? And in some instances, you know, 
Uh, I can remember refereeing a game, Gdansk versus Juventus, um, and that was when the shipyard gates and Lake Valencia and all that. I met Valencia before the game. He became the president of the country. Um, and, and the discussion there was, um, I knew that Valencia was going to the game, had a good idea, but the security people didn't know. And during the course of that match, uh, the ball went over the fence and the fans parted and they start, all started shouting solidarity. So at that point, what you've got to do is be confident. You've got to have a bit of courage and say, right, I'm going to hold it. Mm. I'll mm. wait. I'm not going to get involved. I'm just going to wait for things to happen. And then if, if it turns the wrong way, I'll be advised. There'll be sufficient security people to advise me. So it is a lot of common sense. But you build up this experience over, over many years. But certainly... Preparation. I mean, in my day, you'd, you'd have a cup of tea and a sandwich. Uh, you know, invariably, for example, if you went to Anfield, and most clubs, you were in the you were in the players' lounge. No players mm. before the kickoff. Uh, but but uh, you would have a cup of tea. They'd serve you a cup of tea and a sandwich, and it'd be the uh, So that it, it's you know it's professional in its approach. But then when I became the boss of the PGMOL some years later after retiring. I worked on with a guy called Matt Weston, who was a sports scientist, and we introduced the warm-ups. We were the first country to have referees warming up, which is standard practice now. 30 minutes before the game, go through, if you like, a choreographed warm-up procedure to ensure the muscles, the heart, stretching is carried out, and you're reducing the risk of any, uh, any injury. So it sounds long-winded, but, you know, you're checking things like, I mean... <laughs> Smile because I didn't have communication kits, of course. Mm. But when it, when I became the PGMOL boss, I introduced it, mm. and now that's the national standard. I mean, across the world, everybody uses communication kits. I brought that into play from watching rugby. Mm. I went to a game at Twickenham, listened in, came back to the Premier League, and said, "This is what we've got to have." Wow! And a couple of weeks later, we we got the communication kits, the first country to have them. Then there were questions asked, what about FIFA and all that? You know, just the football is governed by the IFAB. And I've gone, well, I'm sure if they're not unhappy, they will tell us. Uh, but it never really happened. There was never, because they could see it was working. Mm. And, and, you know, the communication kits helped because the fourth official could convey. You know, if, another example of the environment. If, if you're in the local park and the pitch suddenly deteriorates, bomb comes down or, or whatever, you just blow the whistle and you say, come on, guys, we're going off. It's unsafe or whatever. Mm. If you've got 80,000 spectators in the stadium, there's a process. Yeah. You know, you, you've got to advise the, the stadium commander, look, uh, I'm, I'm going to call this game off. It's deteriorating. We're going to bring the players off. But I know then I've got to continue playing for about 10 to 15 minutes. Because if, if that game is abandoned, which might be the case, then you've got to have stewards ready to open the gates. You've got to have police officers in their points to control the traffic. And you might even have coach drivers being prepared mm. uh, to take fans away. Because what you don't want to do is pile 80,000 spectators of both teams onto a plaza, if you like, 
just outside the stadium. Yeah. You're running the risk then of uh, a lot of misconduct. So it's a, a long-winded answer, but it, it shows the thoroughness of what you've got to go into when you're dealing with a big event. Mm, very interesting. Some great, great stories there. Okay, so now while that was a description of a typical day in the life of a referee, one day that certainly wasn't like any other few was the 9th of May 1981, of course, the FA Cup final. Tottenham Hotspur mm. faced off against Manchester City in a matchup at Wembley Stadium that you, of course, had the honour of refereeing in front of not only 100,000 in attendance, but millions more watching at home. And because the first fixture ended in the draw and it was before the penalty system was introduced, of course, you then enjoyed the experience once more in the replay five days later. So how much of an honour was refereeing that match? for you and what are your memories from that day as one of the youngest ever officials to referee the FA Cup final just 36? I think you've got to put it into context there's, there's 27,000 referees in England um, and getting to the pinnacle of you know I think any referee would say that their ambition to reach the professional level or the le that level of the game would be to referee an FA Cup final mm. but, you know it's an ambition it's a dream if you like and to get the final at, at uh, such a young age was a surprise. I, I wasn't expecting it. I'd had a, I'd, I'd, uh, a, a semi-final in 79. I'd run the line at Wembley in 79, mm. Arsenal-Manchester United. But I didn't expect to get the, the, the final. And I was informed six weeks before the game that I was going to be the referee. You travel on the Friday for the Saturday game. You stay at usually White's Hotel on Bayswater Road, London, with your colleagues. Um, you go and attend what is the eve of final rally. That's when all the referees come, not all, but they come to London and they probably get meet each other in the evening and a bit of social goes on. And then the day of the match, I went for a walk in the park with my colleagues, chatted about the game, came back, had a very light lunch, and then you, you show for dribbling you know, <laughs> to the ground. You know, I ain't got to drive to Emily. And it's quite a, it really is quite a nice uh, event. I mean, mm. in international games, you usually have motorcycle outriders and police, uh, all, all the lights flashing, and yeah. you feel absolutely important. But here we drove to, uh, to the ground. We arrived very early. Uh, I was interviewed by BBC. I met Margaret Thatcher and her husband. Wow. Uh, they were down on the pitch, and they came across and complimented me, and... Uh, the, you know, the Prime Minister informed me that her husband was actually had been a rugby referee. So there was a degree of synergy, we chatted. And then, of course, you go into the dressing room eventually and uh, you prepare for the match. It's a huge occasion. I, it, you know, you, you prepare, but it's still like uh, butterflies in the stomach. Mm. Um, you asked and mentioned earlier, did I have any pre-match procedure yes i did um i would always have a shave before the game oh, okay and um, uh, don't ask me why i think it just like it was a procedure and uh, and so uh got changed we were down at the bottom of the tunnel and you see players very experienced players in some instances being very nervous what i remember about that there are two things i remember about the game because i think it epitomized football that was on the first game, which was pretty tight, you had uh, Ricky Villa substituted the Tottenham player. Mm -hmm. And I remember how distraught he was. And he was walking around the perimeter. He didn't go to the technical area then. He, he was walking around the perimeter, 
the, the entrance to the stadium was at one end. So I walked half the length of the, the, the stadium. The game was going on. And I'm looking and thinking, crikey, that's like, must, he must feel like gutted that he's been substituted. He, he wasn't having a very good game. The second point that I remember in that particular game was walking up the steps to be greeted by the Queen Mother. And, um, and as I walk, I'm thinking, just a minute, have I got the replay? Because, you know, I, was, I didn't know. I suddenly thought, if she gives me the medal, um, then I ain't got the replay. She did give me the medal. She just, just did the bow and moved on. Um, and then when I got to the bottom of the steps, I was informed I had the, the, the replay. The replay, about 10,000 less spectators because it was a night match. That was the procedure at Wembley. All else in, in, other, in other terms. But, um, you know, the night match, I drove down on the day of the game. Same hotel, the chauffeur driven to the ground, same way, referee the football match. And, you know, it, it, was, it was a great game. And, uh, and it was great. You know, I'm in the best seat in the house. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, uh, the, the game, there were some really good goals. And I think there was the first penalty kick awarded in 19 years. This was the first replay ever at Wembley uh, for the FA Cup. All those sort of scenarios, and um, and Ricky Veer darting around several players, took a slight knock on the way in terms of could have given a foul. I didn't, and put the ball in the back of the net. And you suddenly, you know, isolated. The, the noise is incredible. Uh, it's a three-two win effectively for, for Spurs, and you see the jubilation and elation of a player who a few days earlier, and that summed up for me football. It still does. Yeah. yeah, football is just like refereeing. It's peaks and troughs. You're only as good a referee as good as your next game, not the not the history that you've you've built behind you. And uh, you know, often referees aren't remembered with regard to their good games or what can be perceived as of being a conduit in such a a wonderful cup final. You, you're usually remembered by sending Tony Gale off West Ham United versus Nottingham Forest some years yeah, later. Yeah. And, and, and West Ham fans will never forgive me, even though it was denial of an obvious goal scoring opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely stuff. Okay, so another thing that has always truly impressed me with referees is, of course, not only their knowledge and ability to command the game, but their fitness levels. You're on the pitch with 22 professional athletes and you have to keep up with both what's happening in the game as well as literally keep up with the players. So what kind of fitness work was a top-level referee like yourself doing on a regular basis to stay in shape? And as the game got faster and you got older, did you begin to struggle to perform as a result? I think the answer is yes, because um, in sports science, you took... You, you actually talk about VO2 max, which is sort of taking oxygen around the body. And no matter how fit and how much training you do, VO2 max grabs you and you deteriorate through age. So mm. you can't do anything about it. Yeah. Um, you have to re remember that FIFA retire referees at 45. I, at, at 48, was ready to retire when the Premier League was formed. And the Premier League came along and said, look, Keith, we, we'd really like you to do a couple of years. And so I knew then that I was going to be one of the first referees to go to 50. Remember, I wasn't a professional referee. I was amateur. I was a sales and marketing director with a, with a company. 
and had to work hard to maintain sales, etc. So my training invariably was locally where I'm living now. And, and I would go to a football field and just run around it forever mm. in the morning. Sometimes at six in the morning, dark in winter, wet, muddy, and it was all endurance. You know, in the evening, it would be, if I was going to train in the evening, I, I would run the distance between the street lamps and occasionally put in a sprint and then a, another. So I was keen to keep fit. I lived uh, almost at the top of a hill and therefore I had further the hill to run. So all endurance based. Yes. So when I, became, when I became the boss of the EGMLR uh, some years later, uh, I played a part. I'd asked for referees to go professional. I'd lost a couple of jobs through referee. Uh, you know, I, I was appointed to do New Zealand versus Australia. And after that, lost my job. So that was the nature of, of, of referee, uh, commitment to the game. Uh, when, the, when I became boss of PTMOL, I employed a guy called Matt Weston, sports scientist. He was... Uh, he was, he was working part-time for us, doing the odd bit. Philip Don, the guy who ran the PGML before. And I brought him in and encouraged him to become full-time. And when we became full-time, we said to the referees, you're going to have a lifestyle change. Uh, we're going to measure your body mass. We're going to fitness train you. We're going to give you skill sets in terms of nutrition. Uh, we're going to tell you what to eat before games or advise you and, and how to recover. All those sort of issues. At the same time, um, I brought in sports psychologists to look at how we could uh, deal with stress, how we could uh, interact and improve our interpersonal skills with, with the players, uh, body language, presence, communication, all those things came into play. And I then I went to I went to Bolton to see Sam Allardyce. One particular week, he was unhappy with an offside decision. When I went there, I was confident my, my guy got it right. But when I got there, I, I was shown Prozo, which was a product that Arsenal, Manchester United, Bolton and other teams were using. Which was almost like the FIFA game that you see now. It's animation, but in the top right-hand code in the video. And then, through the software program, massive uh, backup in terms of distance, speed, distance from ball, accuracy of decisions. So I started then tabulating and had a, a product that gave me much more information because we've lived in a world of perception. Perception of he's not a good referee, he's a good referee or whatever. And I needed to bring that to reality because now they were employees. And therefore, having worked as a boss of the business, I needed to measure their performance accurately. And so from that, we, we knew that referees were running on average 11,500 metres per game. We knew that to keep up with play, they were doing a minimum 1,000 metres. That's seven metres per second. Seven metres per second is a measurement of, say, Thierry Henry mm. running in possession of the ball. Wow. Face. Um, but one of the things that we also did was we used high-speed cameras, and suddenly we realized that referees' body shape was vertical. And when they needed to go, you know, a pass has been made, and this is all very high-speed. But when a pass is made, <clears throat> what was happening, you could see it on the film, was 
the body was energizing backwards, mm. almost like winding up as a spring before it went forward. Wow. Because the, the body shape was vertical. And as a result of that, we were losing three seconds on average with referees, which meant we were 21 meters down. Yes. Yeah. Meters yeah. a second. So I brought in a sprint coach. I started to look at the average number of sprints of players. We at that time were about 25 and players were, many players were 50. So we changed the regime. We had to change the training and we had to increase the number of sprints. So it all became high intensity work. So the drift was away from endurance, part of it important, but it was then impact sprinting, explosive sprinting. And we were able to measure that very, very carefully. And at the same time, the body mass measurement. So we would, okay, referees now do a fitness test, a FIFA fitness test, they have to go through a distance at various speeds. But for me, that was never enough. I needed to do spot checks. And so the spot checks, would, the referees would come in on a fortnightly basis for three days, four days, and we'd announce to them, guys, tomorrow, you're having a multi-stage fitness test. And we expect this level. And we put them through it. And so fitness is usually important. I brought in a vision scientist. Uh, she did work for Manchester United and Professor Gail Stevenson, the late Professor Gail Stevenson, Liverpool University, was an international renown. So we started not only testing eyes, distance, uh, peripheral vision, what exercises could we do, uh, we were measuring reaction times as well. Because obviously, uh, anticipation and cognitive skills is difficult to measure, but we started to measure those as well. Yes. So, so we really had um, and developed, I think, a nucleus of, of at least out of that. You know, we, my business plan was to uh, create a, a cadre of world-class referees. And, you know, as boss of, of the Premier League at that time, PJMOL, um, I was happy that we achieved that. We had some really outstanding referees. We had some excellent referees in the pipeline. You know, Michael Oliver, Atwell had just come on. He'd, he'd had a nightmare in a game uh, at Watford v Liverpool. Watford versus, yeah, I think Liverpool, where he, he, his senior assistant referee convinced him that the ball had gone in the net when it was actually a metre wide. Mm. And that, that affected his career for about two years. It was, a, it was a difficult time, but I'm really pleased now that he's getting established and, and he's becoming a top-class referee. I also brought in um, the measurements of performance. So I would have assessors going around uh, measuring the performance of uh, the referees visually, uh, and, uh, and then... I decided we were policemen, policing policemen, and nobody trusted us. <laughs> and uh, and the great thing then was to, uh, I went to the Premier League, uh, Richard Scudamore, I said, look, I'd like to have a panel of ex-players and managers also assessing referees. And so I think that became very, very successful. They, they went in the dressing room with the referee before kickoff. They listened to the pre-match instructions that, with the referee, with the two linesmen, uh, which is part of the process that I didn't mention earlier, but that 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 all pre-match instructions are important. And then we start to get in balance, and we we 
we were getting, you know, I had a matrix where in the top quartile, you might have a referee who's technically very competent, but poor in managing players. So it'd be Q1, Q4. Yeah. And I knew the areas that our coaching team, and I had a strong coaching team, would work on that individual referee. Mm. Some referees have natural skills. I mean, uh, others work really hard. I mean, if you take Howard Webb, I mean, he was a upper by profession, uh, and we had to we had to go through that process when we created the PGML, which I was development manager. You know, I went to the Premier League and said we got to go. You know, I had discussions then with the chairman, Sir Dave Richards, helped to write a business plan, and and it was good that they made that choice. But then. The first discussion was, Pete, you've got to be the boss of it. And I've gone, fine, you've got to live in London. And I went, not fine. <laughs> and, uh, and I never did. When, when Philip Don, after I think about 18 months, I took over from him. And, and so my mind was a commute and a stay over rather than uh, living in London. But the old, the old scene was that I wanted to measure performance and see how we could advance and enhance referee. And, uh, you know, I, I introduced polar heart monitors. We needed, we needed to ensure that referees were training and doing the right training. So all the training became measured. And the polar heart monitor would, they would uh, regularly download it on the laptops that we provided them and email that to our sports scientists. So I had two sports scientists. One analyzing the data to make certain that the referees were doing the appropriate training. You know, all, all the polls dedicated to that one referee, and therefore the data was collected. So it became very scientific, you know. And mm. I think to some degree, I just get the impression that perhaps uh, there's less of that now with the current crop of referees. Mm. But, you know, I see problems. Fans uh, tell me about problems. I make observations about problems. You know, but what we've got to do is we've got to recognise that there are 19 SG1 referees. Select so one is the Premier League referees. SG2 is Championship. We have 19, and six of those referees are now 50 plus. Wow. And uh, and you know if 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 you know that confirmation is uh, Mason, Mariner, Atkinson, Scott, Dean, Moss. Mm -hmm. You know, Dean is 52. And SG2, because one of the problems I see is succession planning. I also see and look and I think, you're not athletic. I'm not going to name names. You're, you're not athletic. You're not following the plans that were laid down by our sports scientists. Clearly, they're not. And then you see that, you know, you get, you get someone like uh, Michael Oliver. And I'm just looking at some data because I like to be factual. Today, Michael Oliver, this season, think about this, he's refereed 22 Premier League games. Lee Mason has refereed 10. What does that tell you? It, it's telling me that Mason's not as good a referee as uh, Oliver, if he's selected on performance. But then when you actually look at uh, Oliver overall, because remember, he's a FIFA referee, he's actually seasoned today, done 34 games in the middle. Wow. And in addition to that, he's VAR. And fourth official. Yeah. And I've not counted them. I'm not, not going into that detail. The point is that through the data that you're collecting, you can actually measure 
recovery and through the stats that you achieve, you can see whether in fact this referee is fatiguing. Now remember after a game, we're saying to referees, you know, we provided them, uh, not, I suppose I'm not advertising, we surprised them with jelly babies and uh, Jaffa cakes, mm -hmm. as well as a sports drink before and during the game. And we would argue that water is probably just as effective. Liquid is important to me. So if you take Oliver, and this is what I see happening at the moment. So you might have Michael Oliver refereeing a night match on a Saturday. You know that by the very nature, he's going to run 11,500 to 12,000 average. Mm -hmm. And he's going to put 50 sprints in. And you know that, you know, if you take uh, someone like Webb and Clattenburg, Halsey, Halsey, by the way, used to do about 13,000 metres per day. Wow. Somebody like Webb and Clattenburg can do the penalty area to penalty area in 11 seconds. Oh, my goodness. So I'm trying to give you how we got referees into that position. They were yeah. fit, mobile, athletic, and accountable. Because there are referees that I took off the list. I don't, I don't take any pride in that. The, the guy didn't come up to standard. You know, one international FIFA referee, in my opinion, was struggling. I offered him the Football League and he said no. That was it. His career was over. And, uh, you know, people like Keith Stroud and uh, Andy Durso, I, I got down into the into the football league. Mm. You know, mm. like players, some players can cope with the Premier League, and there's some are not. And and so I operate in a, a, a clear accountability. If they made if they made a huge mistake, you know, referees are marked out of hundred, mm -hmm. right? So they never get that. They might get ninety, they might get eighty. But I also put in a system that was pretty draconian, and that is if they made a key, ma a key major incident, error, penalty kick not given, red card not sanctioned, then what I would do is the maximum an assessor could give them, Mark, was 59. Mm. And at the same time, I would be then saying to them, you're not refereeing next week. Or, you know, you're going to get some operational advice. So there was that level of accountability that kept it sharp. Yeah. So... That aspect I felt was important. Yeah, tough. You're no different to Alex Ferguson or Arsene Wenger or Sam Allardyce or David Moyes. If you're paying for a, a number nine, what's a number nine's job? Put the ball in the back of the net. And he's not hitting the net, he's dropped. You know, and if he's not if he's not in the in the best form, you might say, Well, okay, fine, he's done a good job for us. You move on. And so therefore. I don't see the churn in the current group of referees. And I see a fall off in standards and some pretty poor decision-making. And I don't mm. see accountability. So some of what I've put in place, sadly, um, has been lost, I feel. Hmm. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Yeah. Okay, so your 11 years of experience as a FIFA-listed referee, of course, not only saw you officiate matches such as West Germany and Italy's group stage clash at the Euros in 88, like you mentioned earlier, but also the semi-final of the Olympic football tournament of the same year. And of course, all of that means a lot of extensive travel. You headed to every corner of the globe throughout the 80s as your job took you all over the world, including Germany during the final years of the Berlin Wall, of course. How much did you enjoy the travel aspect of the job? And what were those particular experiences like in Germany during such a notable historical event? Yeah, for a good period of my... Uh international career, probably 50%. Um, 
I was traveling into Eastern Bloc countries, mm. in Russia, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Poland, that I've already mentioned, and of course, East Germany. And one of my first internationals was East Germany against Switzerland. Uh, and I, I can remember, I, I, I didn't have English assistant referees, linesmen, which was normally the case. Uh, so I was going to have two more different international referees traveling with me. And I, I uh, arrived late in West Berlin, Berlin by plane and then was driven to Checkpoint Charlie mm. by a member of the West German FA who said, right, Mr. Ackett, you've got to now walk through Checkpoint Charlie. Um, and um, it was, it, you know, without exaggerating, it was a bit James Bondish. You know, yeah. I mean, like, you, you know, you, you just a minute, you've got American soldiers this side and you go into the Eastern Bloc. Um, and, you, you know, earlier in my career in 81, I, I refereed on the North American Soccer League for about eight weeks. Mm -hmm. And uh, I met an assistant referee, linesman, and uh, he was Czechoslovakia. And in fact, on his first attempt to get over the wall or through the net, he'd been shot. And then him and his girlfriend went, having been put in jail, served a sentence. He then, later on in life, decided him and his girlfriend that they would escape again. And, uh, and he did escape. And so that was a reality, you know, sat having dinner with him and him and his wife uh, in Canada, listening to that was, was like, suddenly you realize, just a minute, <laughs> all those sort of different scenarios. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I walked with a bag in hand across Checkpoint Charlie, the road to the other side where I was greeted by a guy who spoke perfect English, better English than I do. <laughs> and, um, and, he, and he just said to me, Mr. Hackett, you could see the bullet marks in the, in the uh, building. I said, Mr. Hackett, turn and face. Have you got a camera? And I go, well, I was going to the Eastern Bloc and uh, I'm advised by the FA not to take a camera. So I can go, a mobile phone's went there. He said to me, Mr. Hackett, amazing football, isn't it? Some years ago, the president of the United States gave a very famous speech near the wall. Yes, of yes. course, yeah. Kennedy, and he couldn't come in, and you can. And so you used to, you know, in a way, sometimes it was a shock. You used to drive, you'd be chauffeur-driven in a beautiful car, you'd be staying in a nice hotel, plenty of food if you wanted it. You would see women digging the roads, and you'd go past shops. They'd be queuing for bread. And, you know, I can remember going to uh, Czechoslovakia in Prague and, uh, you know, somebody said to me, would you like to go into a store and uh, buy some souvenirs? And I said, yeah, I'd like some postcards and I'll send them to my friends. And uh, I go in the store and, and like, uh, someone's following me. And uh, there was only cycles for sale, Chinese cycles for sale, nothing else in the store. And they said, what would you like? And I'm going, what's available? It wasn't on display. And, and then refereeing in Craiova in Romania, arriving in, in Bucharest. Craiova is a university city. And, um, and as we drove from uh, Bucharest, you had the old city and then you got into right very quickly into no roads and uh, farm tracks and all that goes with it. And, and, you know, at the end of that game, came back to Bucharest, we stayed in the Athene Palace Hotel. We were given the freedom of the Athene Palace Hotel, my colleagues and I, and we had a banquet mm. at which the president of the country was in attendance. 
And I, and I sat opposite this guy who kept asking me, is the wine okay? And he, he was a foreign minister. The one thing that he, I can tell you with complete definition is that most countries, sport plays an important part. And Eastern Bloc countries, sport played a major part. And therefore, as someone that's coming from England to referee, you know, you would be in places. When I went to Gdansk, there was no Western journalist allowed. There was no Westerner allowed. You know, the embassy had been closed. And a few days before that particular game, there was a lot of discussion as to whether I was going to be allowed to go. And then I arrived in, uh, in, Wars in Warsaw, and uh, I then had to say to the guys, look, I, I can't stay in this hotel in, in Warsaw. They said, Tomorrow we're going to drive you to Gdansk. No, I'm sorry. I have to be in the city. And I then had to contact UEFA. UEFA, the governing body, then had discussions with the Polish FA. And eventually we were driven to the airport. And we, my two colleagues and I, flew to uh, Gdansk in what can only say was an antique relic of an airplane. <laughs> you know, we, we flew it. We flew at 3,000 feet going up and down, up and down. <laughs> you know, most Polish guys can speak English. I said to him, look, why can't you go higher above the clouds? And he goes, no, this is a visual fight. And we were following the road. <laughs> I mean, yeah. But I did meet Walensa, you know, so you, you are meeting royalty and presidents in, in, in that sense. Yeah, one of my last games was, uh, I mean, I was in Kiev, but Kiev, Dynamo Kiev was my actual last game in, in the Europeans. And that was about a week before uh, Russia and, and the nations went to a vote, where then you had the splitting up of, uh, of Russia. So mm -hmm. being in Kiev was quite interesting because they were already preparing. They were trying to find a way of buying lorries because heavy-duty lorries were the ownership of the government. And you had private entrepreneurs saying, you know, where can I buy a lorry from in England, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, interesting mm. time. Yeah, very, very good stories there. We're looking forward to sharing those. Okay, so as well as the 1981 FA Cup final, another well-remembered match you held the whistle for was, of course, that league encounter in 1990 between Manchester United and Arsenal. While the game ended 1-0, of course, the main talking point was the 21-man brawl that broke out in the 59th minute that saw you book both Anders Limpar and Nigel Winterburn for their involvement, and both teams docked points for the melee. Now, most referees, I'm sure, have had to break up scuffles between a couple of players before, but 21 is almost unheard of. So what was your first thought when the fight broke out? And as a general procedure, how did you approach those in-game scuffle situations throughout your career? Right, I think that um, I learned a lot from that. We, we didn't have a, process, a procedure, really. It was blast the whistle hard. And because I was six foot, I'd get in and separate. That was the, <laughs> that was the style. Um, and then, of course... It settled down very quickly, in fairness. Mm -hmm. And then I've got I've got the consideration who I'm sending off. And I thought to myself, truly thought to myself, well, he can go. He could go. He could go. He could go. Just, <laughs> you know, how many's going to go yet? And, and so I'm talking at, at, you know, there's some pretty big numbers. And so I suddenly backed off and said, just a minute, 30 minutes to go. I can issue a report. And this is my thinking. I, as things were calming down, I can send in a report, and that's what I'm going to do. And um, and I sent in the report. I attended a meeting. I was asked, given what I'd seen now on, on the TV monitor, would I do something different? And I went, yeah. Hmm. Uh, McClare, McClare would go as well. 
uh, and there would be at least a couple of red cards. <laughs> and I could see it very clearly. And, you know, okay, points were deducted. But I, I came, came away from that saying, I needed to have a process that was much better than the one that I had. Because when you have incidents of that nature, and referees never stop learning, even though they retire from refereeing, they never stop learning. They're looking, they have to. And most refereeing incidents are processed. I'll give you an example. A couple of weeks ago, I saw Lee Mason uh, award a free kick at the edge of the penalty area. He stood over the ball and he was marching the ball out when clearly a player, an attacking player, spoke to him, he stepped to one side, the ball went in the back of the net, and he's then blown again because he's realised he's made a mistake. So the reason I mention that is there's a simple process. player can have a quick free kick. So you've blown the whistle, you've given a free kick, he wants a quick one, he takes it. Mm -hmm. And you've got to be alert to that. However, once the referee stood over the ball and starts to pace out 9.15, that's the end of the, uh, the process. He's got the process, he's got the 9.15, the goalkeeper's ready, the kicker's ready, he signals, and away you go. Mason didn't follow that out and got himself in jail. So now let's look at mass confrontations. If you've ever got time, take a look at the Charity Shield game between Chelsea and Arsenal in 1996, where Howard Webb was, was the match referee. What he had was in the nine, about the 90th minute, he had two players clash. And th then there was a coming together of, of mass confrontation. The principles that we'd laid down and agreed was this, that in mass confrontation situations, the referee blows his whistle hard, stands clear, and makes note of what is happening. The two assistant referees, the one nearest comes on pretty quickly, and he's observing the situation. And then the guy, probably hopefully at the technical area, comes on later. The one from the technical area is looking at any runners. So if the goalkeeper's come from a distance, he's blocked him and he not bring that to the referee's attention. So now the procedure is, having got it calmed down, the referee will go through which red cards he needs to administer and he does those. If you've got one from either team, the away team goes first. You get him out of the way, you leave a gap of some 15, 20 yards so they don't start a fight again, and you then send the second player off. You then ask your assistant referees if they've seen any red cards. If they have, then you've got the third player to send off. Finally, you've got your yellow cards and you administer those if you have to. Mm. So... That's the procedure. And if you look at that 1996 final Howard Webb, you'll see that process carried out absolutely spot on. Mm. Okay, so you've, of course, been involved in and played a part in some fantastic events and moments in history of football throughout your career, including the foundation of the now commonplace Premier League that you mentioned earlier. In 1992-1993 season, despite reaching English referee retirement age, due to your prowess in the profession, you were granted an extension and became one of the first set of Premier League referees for its inaugural campaign, being granted a further season before retiring just short of your 50th birthday. So, how exciting was it to be a part of the Premier League's foundation as an on-field official? And personally speaking... Were you a fan of the way the game was headed with regards to TV broadcasting rights deals, sponsorships, money, all of that kind of thing? Uh, well, I, I was I was a referee, and uh, you know, even when I was a professional referee, I still refereed at grassroots level. So 
I got the challenge of, say, Liverpool, Manchester United one evening and maybe the following day, two pub teams at grassroots level. Mm-hmm. Uh, in reality, give me a game and I'd referee it. And so, yeah, what we saw was uh, additional pressures because we were travelling from one end of the country to the next. We got that flow, of course, the increased number of overseas players coming in, world-class players, added to already some outstanding uh, players. Television exposed our errors, uh, you know, and that got greater. I mean, you know, we, we'd moved from a, an era of match of the day and you might get 10 minutes of your game to whole games being covered by television. Mm. and huge amounts of money. Um, and perhaps in those two years, you know, the, the, I was there to help the uh, the league bed in. I was pleased with that. Uh, and in fact, to be honest with you, having done two two extra years, they wanted me to do another. Ah. But I, I did Liverpool. I did Manchester United v Liverpool and decided almost that morning that I was coming up, you know, that was going to be the end, last game I'd referee. I'd made that decision, uh, I, you know, and it was the right one at the time uh, because I think the game was getting quicker, players were more skillful, and uh, and as an amateur referee in a professional environment, I was getting caught out, speed, distance, and all that goes with it. And so it was inevitable that when I started to chat to the chairman of the Premier League that we needed professional referees, that we would move in that, in that area. And I think that was exactly the right move I've talked about what I think is, you know, peaks and troughs in refereeing standards. Uh, I think at the moment, with with the majority of referees in in the Premier League, we're in a bit of a trough. I think we're, you know, we've got an aging population. We don't, we don't seem to use the young guys coming on enough. And uh, when I look at the succession plan, at grassroots level and semi-pro level, I see some outstanding referees. But then we look at SG2, and SG2 is professional group of referees that have to referee the championship and below. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I look at that and I suddenly think, well, Keith Stroud's still there and I dropped him years ago and he's 52. And then I look at further down the list and, and you've got another referee, age 56. So you begin to worry that, is there a succession plan? Is there, I know that there's a pyramid system, but is there a pathway to the top and, you know, the people running the, the organization strong enough to make the changes. And some of those changes are tough. And now I'm reading that Mike Dean, who is, is refereeing quite well, is likely to have a, another year. So he's going to be 53 next year, refereeing on the, on the Premier League when, it, when the season starts, the new season. Mm. So I think, I think generally from, from it, it was impact. I think that what impacted on referees more than the Premier League okay, the exposure to the media and the like, uh, was the fact that the laws of the game were changed and they brought the pass-back, as everybody knows, as a pass-back rule. Mm-hmm. And that suddenly increased the speed of the game by about 40%. Wow. You can clearly say, whoa, that's, that's really a, a major impact in, in the game and, and, and impacted uh, massively. So, again, an important, important part. Yeah. Very, very interesting. 
So another aspect of the sport that seems to have become commonplace nowadays is that of VAR that are said to reduce in-game errors and poor decisions made by on-field officials through utilisation of the video replay system. Now, like most things, VAR was met with a lot of teething problems and public criticism by people that felt it was ruining the game, though it seems to be, at least from what I've seen, very divisive in that an equal amount of people support and disapprove of it. So as a former professional referee yourself, given that you didn't have this technology available to you when you were officiating, what are your thoughts on VAR? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm a guy who says if, if a referee's under the glare of 22 cameras, at times he's going to be caught out of position. Mm-hmm. And, and there is a process in refereeing, and that is, first of all, the first bit is to see something and then to react and think before making your decision. So there's a process and you, you, you go through that. And therefore, for me, you have to have VAR to cover the cracks. And I, I want to just touch on something else because I can remember as the boss of the PGMR sitting at Old Trafford watching a goal being dropped, the ball being dropped by Roy Carroll, one metre over the line. Some months later, I went to the Premier League summer conference to put forward the need for goal line technology. I then worked with Orkai closely to develop goal line technology. And we worked... And it took us uh, 18 months to get the system really accurate. And then a further two, three years to get FIFA to agree to its use. Mm. And the basis of, of Orkai is to take away the human element, to go to a set software package that's calibrated before every game. And you're operating with seven cameras around each goal at 500 frames per second. And I made that observation because I'm going to return to it shortly. If I look at the introduction of VAR by the Premier League, the PGMRL, it's been a disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason it's been a disaster is they've not bought into it. Uh, the first year of VAR being in operation around the world, the Premier League, the, the prestigious Premier League, decided they wouldn't have it. So they allowed other countries to have it for a year. And in that year, lots of, lots of countries learned quite a bit and adjusted. And they worked very strictly to the VAR protocol. And the VAR protocol said that they wanted the monitor, pitch side monitor used in order that the referee retains the decision. Particularly when you consider that a lot of decisions made by referees are subjective. So what did we do in the PGML, the Premier League? Uh, well, Yeah, the monitors were there, but the boss said, we're going to use them sparingly. Well, out of 380 games, they were used twice. That's not sparingly. That's not using it. So for two years, the first two years, has been a massive struggle for all sorts of reasons. First one, do they use the monitor, don't they? And they should, and it's improving. Should a referee when he views the monitor, be allowed, or should I dare say stick with the original call that his colleague might have thought was wrong? Sure he can. But I think they've abdicated the responsibility in many instances. So I think the protocols they've not been running to that I've seen in other countries. Then we have offside. And um, when we come to offside, we've got the lines and we've got the process. And we're making decisions on a frame that somebody selected 
a frame from a camera speed of 50 frames per second, not 500. So if you take a slice of a loaf and you slice it 500 times and you take a loaf that's 50 slices, you can see the difference in terms of which slice that you pick in that middle bit. Mm -hmm. And you could, you could be selecting one that suits the case and the argument. It doesn't give you the full picture. You know, so I'm not happy personally with how they're currently operating on offsite. And this is not just VAR. I think the law itself needs to be changed. Now we get down to the people involved because it ain't VAR that's the problem. It's actually the people. When we look at the referees and we say, right, we're actually using referees who could be refereeing the night before, fatigued, involved in a big decision, a controversial incident, and the following day they're VAR. And they've still got the, the, the dregs, if you like, of what's happened in the previous game. Or you may be in the middle, the most experienced referee, like my, Martin Atkinson, former FIFA international referee, many years on the, on the Premier League list, very competent official. And his VAR is someone who's had three or four games in the PGMR Premier League. Now, there's a problem because I think the relationship between the referee and the VAR could be adrift. The, the youngster saying, or the new boy on the block saying, I don't want to interfere, he's got to be right because he's, he, he is who he is. And then more recently, I was very shocked a couple of weeks ago with the revelation in the Sun newspaper where, you know, one of my former employees, Mark Elsey, a, a guy who's still in touch with many referees on the Premier League, I'm not, uh, advises in the newspaper that, you know, on one occasion, the VAR wanted as a referee, wanted to, to advise the referee that there might be a penalty kick and some... A uh, technical expert with no refereeing experience suggested to him that he shouldn't do that. So all of a sudden, you've got an analyst refereeing the football match. Yeah. So there's those aspects. Now, the other aspect is, I think you've got to ensure that you've got one hand in the in the back of the referees to remain that they're sharp, because I think that what I've seen so far is that VAR is making the referees lazy. And I listened to uh, Nigel Owens, the famous, former famous rugby union referee. Of course. Who uses the TMO. And of course, hey, that's an old ge another game because I'm in favour of the big screens. I'm in favour of the referee being listened by the spectators, being able to hear what's going on. Because it works in rugby, no reason why it shouldn't work in referee. But he talked about the early years of TMO. And he, and he used the analogy of a tightrope walker and said, well, think of a tightrope walker. He's got no safety net. He's sharp, he's focused, he's on that tightrope. He doesn't want to fall off because if he makes a mistake, he will. Well, what about the tightrope walker that's now got a safety net? And if he falls off, he bounces in the net. He's okay. He becomes sloppy and lazy. And that's where our refereeing is with VAO. Hmm. I could go on at length. I've seen decisions where... You know, I saw an incident involving Harry Maguire. Referee didn't give a penalty kick. It was a clear penalty kick. Maguire had got the player almost in a headlock. So you expect VAR to come in and VAR doesn't come in. And you say, what's going off here? Has, has VAR gone out for a cup of tea? <laughs> you know, so we've either got overactive VARs who are not sticking to the clear and obvious error 
And David Ellery, who's the technical director of the IFAB, responsible for VAR along with FIFA, in an article in the Times recently wrote that VAR should only come on when it's a, an obvious mistake. He made it clear, and I think he was saying, look, you're coming into office. If I look at the MLS, the VAR comes in one in three games, mm. only once in every three games. That's the current stat, MLS, attributed to Greg Barkey, who's the manager of the uh, VAR in the MLS or Pro Ref. And, you know, similar stats across Europe, Bundesliga, Italy, and the like. So we just need to reconsider. You know, I, I've said I've got a plan. I would have specialist referees. Uh, ref former referees, even former managers, bosses, players, at VAR, completely independent. Sit there, they watch, they advise the referee that it's a doubtful decision, have a look. And the retention of the decision is with the referee. Hmm. I would train them. I would make them accountable. Currently, I think it's a hot potato. Who blames who? It's the referee in the middle that gets the can and the stick, not the VAR guy, his colleague, his staff in a room in Stockley Park with screens in front of it. Yeah. Rugby, I think, have got it absolutely nailed on. And every time I watch a rugby game, I just think, if only football could have a system like this. And I think what you were touching on earlier about the um, communication packs, the fact that you brought that from rugby, I find very interesting. Okay, so most younger fans of football tend to idolise their favourite players and teams as opposed to the on-field officials. But referees, of course, play a crucial part in the game because without them, as I learned during my sporting youth, there is no game. So I'd love to know, do you have any advice for the younger people listening to this that are wanting to get into refereeing and officiating? And what great things about refereeing are there that should encourage people to give it a go? I think that if you look at a player, player plays during a game for 90 minutes and there's 22 of you. Just divide 90 by 22 and it gives you the amount of time that you might get on the ball. A referee before kickoff, after kickoff, during the game is involved the full 90 minutes with his colleagues. There are challenges. You know, you're, you're developing your personal skills. You're, you're developing your knowledge of the laws of the game. We never stop learning the laws of the game. We learn how to manage players. You know, we can spend a bit of time as we move up the ladder stargazing a bit because we're suddenly, you know, in my career, I'm still, you know, I'm sharing the field with the likes of George Bess initially, uh, Maradona, Puccini, uh, you know, uh, I, I can tell you that, you know, Carlos Alberto, Franz Beckenbauer, the most favourite player who was a hero was Derek Dooley, who was Sheffield Wednesday's number nine, who sadly lost his leg at a game at Preston through gangrene. Um, but then I always used to admire Kenny Dalgleish. I went to a soccer school in Canada uh, with Gordon Banks and Paul Sturrock, and I watched Gordon Banks, you know, in 1966 World Cup final referee, spending long days teaching kids how to be goalkeepers with massive enthusiasm and great communication. So it almost becomes a disease when you referee. You have a whistle and you've got your kit and you get massive amounts of enjoyment it's changing, and some, sometimes it's changing for the worse. This is why I'm saying I put pressure on at the top level because I want everybody, if they wish, to aspire to, to referee a World Cup. I, I, I want everybody, if they, that's their ambition, to do whatever they want in relation to if it's the parent who's refereeing just because their son plays and he gets some enjoyment, let's... Try and hold on to him when his son moves on to school or higher level 
let's hold on to that guy as, uh, or girl as, as a referee. The enjoyment is enormous. There's nothing more, you know, enjoyable than coming off, being a facilitator of the game where you've had involvement and the game's gone well and people come up and shake your hand and say, thank you very much. Mm. Um, yeah, and there's a tough side, you know. I mean, I think current referees, because of what people see on television, uh, the game at grassroots level is much more difficult to referee. But what you have to do is you should join the Referees Association. And I, I think the Referees Association has some work to do to, to move forward. But I've got a colleague here in Sheffield who's set up a new new branch, if you like, uh, to do all the training online and capture more kids and people and, and give that sort of flair. I mean, I can remember my first meeting at the RA at the Grand Hotel in Sheffield. It's no longer there. And I walk into that room and sat opposite people I've watched on television. George McRae, we'd refereed a World Cup final. The speaker that evening was Ken Astley. And it was amazing because years later, I worked for a, Ro a Romford-based company and I would spend time in a hotel in Brentwood in Essex. And I was invited to become a member of the Romford RA. The chairman was Ken Astley. <laughs> the first guy I'd heard talk about referee. And I got to know Ken quite well. He was the guy invented red and yellow cards. He'd have the difficulty in the 66 World Cup when uh, the referee wanted to send off Ratin of Argentina. Again, you can see it on YouTube. And because of communication, couldn't get a message across to the player. The player was reluctant to, to leave. And a couple of years later, he thought of this idea. He, was stopped, he stopped at a traffic light in the car driving home. And he suddenly went, that's it. Wow. Red and yellow. And as a result, Red and yellow cards were introduced in 1970 into play. So, you know, as a, as a means of communication. And what was interesting was when we first had red and yellow cards, the, the, the yellow card was rectangular and the red card was oval in shape. You know, well, I asked the question, why can't I have a rectangular red card? They go, well, this is if, if any player's colorblind. Yes, of course. And, and you see now the red and yellow card is rectangular. Uh, so, again, things that are introduced drift and, and don't continue. Keeps you fit and healthy. It's a hobby. If you're in a university and, you know, money's tight, you've got a Sunday or Saturday free, why not referee? You get paid. Yeah. You know, a referee, a referee now at the Premier League gets 100,000 plus. If Mike, if, Mike, if Michael Oliver is refereeing a Champions League game, he's getting 5,000 euros. <sighs> My goodness. That's how things have changed. I can remember doing my early games and I was getting less than 50 pence. Wow. In perspective, you know, when I refereed the cup final, the guy came in before the start of the first game and said, right, Mr. Hackett, you've got a choice to make. It's a gold medal as a memento of this great game or your match fee of 35 pounds. <laughs> and because I did the replay, the guy on the Thursday said, Obviously, you keep your medal because that's been presented to you. And here's a check for £35. So you see, it's evolving, it changes. But I think it's there's a lot of camaraderie. That, you know, I mean, I chatting to a couple of referees uh, earlier today, one in New Zealand. When I left, I became uh, the PGML. I became the referee ambassador for the uh, Premier League, which mm -hmm. meant I travelled the world uh, running workshops. And I can remember running a workshop in Cameroon bringing people from the village, 
encouraging to become referees, spending a week at workshop, laws of the game, and refereeing football matches. And one of those guys out of the township is a guy called Elvis Nuku. And Elvis now is an international referee. He needs to travels the world um, and enjoys quite a good living. You know, that one, one piece of diamond that you've brought out of uh, a village, he liked Elvis Presley, that's why it's called Elvis. <laughs> and, uh, and now he's an international match official. Wow. So lots of, lots of enjoyment, massive amounts of enjoyment, lots of camaraderie. Lots of discussion, always learning, always challenging uh, at whatever age, dealing with parents, eventually when you get to the Premier League, dealing with the press and the media at times. Uh, totally enjoyable. I'd recommend it to anybody. And of course, there's another major milestone, at, I think, early next week. And that is when a woman referee takes the first football league game mm. in the middle. And that is a massive move that I, I didn't think I would see as quick, sadly. You know, we've seen uh, in other countries referees refereeing top-level games. Stephanie Frappart of uh, France recently refereed a Champions League game, Nations League game. So, hey, this is not just boys and men that can, can referee. It's women and girls. There's an opportunity. If you're not a good player then and you want to play and can be involved in the game, Take up Fantastic. Great, great answer. Okay, Keith, like I do with all of my guests, I'm going to end with some quick fire questions. Are you ready? Yeah. Let's do it. Okay, first question is favorite takeaway food? Chinese. Okay, dogs yeah. or cats? Dogs. Dogs, yeah. Have you got any dogs? Uh, no, not now. Uh, we used to have and got very attached to, to a couple of dogs. Uh, and then we decided, because we were so upset when they passed away, sadly, that we would stop doing that. My sons yeah. have them, uh, but we don't. Oh, okay. Favourite music artist of all time? Oh, that's good. Um, I particularly like the Dire, dire Straits, Neil yeah. Diamond. And I once refereed a game in Spain, uh, in Italy, sorry, uh, into Milan. And uh, before the game, we, we looked at the city and then the guy, the Italian said to me, what would you like to see? And I, I said, I'd, I'd like to go to La Scala and take a look. And um, we went in La Scala. It was, they just had it refurbished. I'm, I'm not an opera guy, by the way. But I went in. It was absolutely fabulous. Watched them making costumes and all the flight. And then on the stage was this guy going through the octaves and, and then suddenly asked us what we were doing. And I said I was the referee. He introduced myself. We had a short conversation. And I invited him to the game. <laughs> Brilliant. And, uh, and that guy came to the game. That guy was Placido Domingo. Oh, wow. <laughs> we've, got, we've got a better, bigger cheer than I did. Than I <laughs> he stepped onto the field to be presented to the audience. But yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, favourite sports film? I don't really have one, mm -hmm. to be honest. I don't, I don't have one. Um, obviously, I've watched a few, Escape with Bobby Moore and the like, I suppose. At the time, that was enjoyable. I, I, I more more or less like watching. And by the way, when I went to the Olympic State Games in '88 in Seoul in Korea, I had a great time. I had a pass that allowed me into any sport. So I watched the boxing, the swimming. I watched the athletes. I, I, I had discussions with athletic coaches, and realised very quickly how prepared they were and how detailed they were. And that was a great learning curve for me. Very cool. Okay, best player. I know you mentioned a few names earlier, but if you had to choose one, best player you've ever had the pleasure of refereeing a game for? 
Between two, uh, Maradona and Platini and uh, Kenny Dalglish. Mm. The reason I like uh, Dalglish, right, is simple. 100%. Every game he stepped onto the, that grass, he just gave 100%. He wasn't the easiest player to referee, but he was very, very skillful. I'll tell you one quick story. Carlos mm-hmm. Alberto. So I'm heading for Giants Stadium due to referee New York Cosmos against Vancouver Whitecaps. We're stuck in Lincoln Tunnel. I'm in a chauffeur-driven limousine. The driver suddenly gets out and starts screaming and shouting, and I'm thinking, I don't think this is going to move the traffic, and I'm getting <laughs> concerned about the time for kickoff. And then all of a sudden, this guy comes walking back to the car. He's got a pair of boots in his hands. He sits in the side of me in the, in the, in the chauffeur-driven car. And that guy was Carlos Alberto, the, the Brazilian <laughs> captain who some time earlier had lifted the World Cup. <laughs> I have to tell you that 400 yards approximately from the stadium, I decided, I asked the guy, could you stop? I suddenly realised that turning up for a game of professional football with the captain of New York Cosmos uh, in the same car as me was not the right thing to do. So I got out and <laughs> Almost 400 yards to against. Smart thinking. Okay. Best goal you've ever awarded during your career? Got to be Ricky Beer in the 1981 Cup. Mm. Mackenzie of Manchester City scored an absolute scorcher. But that for me, yes. you know, it's shown most years when the Cup final's on. Great pleasure to uh, to watch that and from the best seat in the stand. In <laughs> yeah, very, very nice. Okay. Bit of a different one. The mouthiest player you've ever seen on the field. <laughs> Brian Robson. <laughs> uh, I, I can tell you, I once, uh, I think they were playing, I, I forgot what they were playing, but it was Christmas time. And uh, I pulled a cracker with a plastic whistle at it. It was very small. And I'm at Old Trafford, I'm shaking hands, Robson comes up. I've got to tell you that not a short time before, a few, few months before, Robson had been knocked unconscious and I helped to pull his tongue and clear his airway. Wow. Uh, but that's another story. And so we shake hands and uh, a bit of light relief. I said, this is my whistle, here's yours, and Andrew Robson, a small plastic. <laughs> he wasn't amused. Brilliant stuff. Okay, the most respectful captain you've ever met during the coin toss and in the game? Two, Steve Perryman and Paul Power. Nice. They were the two captains at the FA Cup final. Usually respectful. I mean, I refereed them in other games as well. Brilliant professional players. Brilliant, brilliant professional players. Fantastic. Okay. The most cards you've ever handed out in a single game? Probably three. Three? Wow. Well, I mean, I, I, I proactively manage rather than card. Okay. Very nice. Okay. Have you ever forgotten any refereeing equipment and had to improvise before? <laughs> uh, a red card. A red card? Yeah. And I can tell you I was very fortunate. This was a friendly game. This mm-hmm. was after like, the semi-final. And Sheffield Wednesday were playing a private game. Well, it wasn't. It was a, it was friendly between uh, Sheffield Wednesday and Nigeria, the national team. And, I, and I, as I was walking down the tunnel, David Morrell, my linesman from Sheffield also, said to me, Keith, have you got red and yellow cards? I didn't see you put them in the pocket. I went, ah, I don't need them. It's a friendly. <laughs> and he said, I think you should have them. And I went, OK, if you insist. And of course, my yellow card used to be in my right hand short pocket and my red card in my tunic buttoned to give me thinking time 
And during the course of the match, I've awarded a free kick to Sheffield Wednesday, as you do. And a Nigerian player walked up to the Sheffield Wednesday player and planted him big time with the best right-hand cross you've ever seen. <laughs> and I've looked in total amazement. And I've gone, red card, which I produced. And then the player wouldn't go. And, I, and, I, and he was pretty aggressive. And I said, if you want, I'll get the policeman. And I just signalled for the policeman to come on and Policeman stepped two yards onto the pitch and off went the player. <laughs> uh, yeah, I learned that day. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, if you had to choose and I had to hold you to it, VAR in or VAR out? Oh, VAR in. Mm. But I've got to tell you, I've definitely got to say it's got to operate the way I want it to operate at the level I expect it to operate. And that would mean a lot of interference from me yep. to make dramatic changes. Well, fingers crossed. Okay, and finally, who will be the winner of this summer's Euros tournament? Ah, that's always a good question. First of all, I don't know which English referee is going to go there. Mm-hmm. So I never, promote, I never promote the idea of England winning the tournament <laughs> because then it excludes an English referee. Mm. I think, I think we'd, we'd want England to win it. That mm. They've really got to advance and make some changes. We've got to start playing the game that we play at the Premier League level when we've got crowds, and that is high-tempo, fast-passing skills that we've got now. We've got some wonderful young players. Uh, you know, I mean, everybody praises rightly so Foden. I think he's, he's outstanding. But the technical skills that we see from players now is, is wonderful to see. Yeah, well, fingers crossed. Football will be coming home once again. <laughs> Keith, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. Where can people find you across social media and check out your journalism work and the books that you publish as well? Well, they can find me at khackett3thesky.com. I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, I'm on uh, LinkedIn, usually commenting about the decisions. And, pretty, you know, if somebody asks, wants to ask me a question, I'll always give them an answer. Fantastic, lovely stuff. I'll make sure to leave all those links in the description so people can contact you. Keith, once again, thank you very much and have a lovely pleasure. rest of your day. Thank you. That was my interview with the brilliant Keith Hackett, one of the most prestigious officials in the game's history who had plenty of incredible stories to share from his time both holding the whistle and off the pitch too. From refereeing next to the Berlin Wall to breaking up a 21-man brawl, there truly is no end to the unbelievable experiences Keith has had during his career, which I was very honoured to be able to share with you all. Please go and check out Keith on all of his social media platforms as well as his journalism work that he continues to do at the age of 76. All the links you need are in the description of this episode. I've got many more great guests coming very soon, so stay tuned right here on Seb Talk Sports. And to take us out as usual, here's another brilliant track by All Pro New York Giants running back, turned music creator and friend of the show, David Wilson. Catch you soon, guys. (laughs) 